Welcome to the Booktopia podcast. I'm Ben Hunter, Booktopia's Fiction Category Manager, and this is a podcast about books and the wonderful people who read them and write them. Uh, Meg Keneally is definitely one of those people. She's a Sydney-based author with a fascination for maritime history and archaeology, I would say. Her debut novel, Fled, came out in early 2019. She also co-authors the Montserrat series with her father, Tom Keneally, and has a career in public relations and corporate affairs. Her latest novel is called The Wreck. Meg, thanks for joining me on the show. Thanks for having me. It's a real pleasure. Um, How have you been? It's been a really weird year. It has been an interesting year, hasn't it? Um, uh, I'm I'm okay. I'm you know, feel very lucky that, uh, uh, you know, our, our country hasn't been worse affected than, uh, than it has been. So looking on the bright side, I guess. Meg, when did you become such an obsessive about our maritime history and convicts? I think it started when I was a kid and uh, my father is uh, rather obsessed with history. And when I was a kid, he'd drag us around historical sites when we would have much rather been home watching TV. But uh, uh, I think some of it probably stuck. Uh, and it's just been part of the fabric of my life for as long as I can remember as far as history is concerned. And I've always loved the ocean. Um, uh, I'm a keen scuba diver. I used to be an instructor and I love being underwater. Uh, and of course, part of the um, uh, part of the process of getting underwater involves being on the water on a boat um, and working uh, on a dive boat. I got to know a skipper who uh, has sailed tall ships, sailed in the 1988 tall ship reenactment, knows a lot about maritime history. And through him, I, uh, uh, I became even more interested in, in maritime history than I had already been. I was already pretty interested. Um, and I just love the idea that this blank faceless sea hides all of these incredible things just sort of lurking underneath the surface, um, waiting to be found. It's, it's really enticing. I did read that you'd um, done scuba diving. I thought it was totally interesting. Uh, have you ever dived on a real shipwreck? Yes. Yes, I've dived on uh, a couple of real shipwrecks. Um, uh, in some destinations, they, they sink them specifically for divers, including the former HMAS Adelaide up near yes. Terrible. Um, and I always love the moment when... Frequently, the, the water is a bit murky because there's not much coral, etc., binding the seabed together. So when you descend, you often can't see the ship at first. And you're descending through the water and all of a sudden the shape of it starts to resolve beneath you and you see the mast and then you see the deck and there are fish swimming all around. And that moment is just unutterably thrilling. I just love it. Um, can you tell us about Sarah McCaffrey? Um, tell us how she comes aboard a, a ship bound for New South Wales and, and, and what her role is in your story. Well, Sarah's my main character and what I wanted to do was tie together um, four parts of history that I'd always wanted to write about. Um, and I needed a character who could straddle all of those. Uh, so Sarah... Uh, is a mill worker in Manchester who's involved in an event known as the Peterloo Massacre, which was a peaceful protest uh, 
the magistrate sent the Hassas and the yeoman waiting in. By the end of the day, um, 20 people were dead, hundreds were injured. It was an absolutely shameful, you know, suppression of peaceful protest. And I'm very interested in the resonances between history and, and modern society. Um, and I had already written the book by the time, you know, recent events unfolded, but it just goes to show that we can't be too smug in the modern world that suppression of peaceful protest still happens. But that was one aspect I wanted to look at. And the second was an event known as the Cato Street Conspiracy, uh, where some radicals decided that they were going to uh, behead the cabinet and declare a provisional government. Because at the time, England was in a pretty awful place if you were if you were poor they were keeping out foreign grain to keep the merchants happy which meant people couldn't afford food um, you couldn't vote unless you were male and owned land there were rotten burrows left right and center it was a very corrupt system uh, and uh, so they, this group of radicals decided to do this unfortunately for them it was a trap set by a police spy and they were all arrested um, i was really interested as well in the link between uh, oppression and extremism, because in that section of the book where Sarah's involved in an uprising like the Cato Street conspiracy, she's essentially a terrorist. Uh, and uh, I don't condone the idea of beheading cabinet ministers, um, but I really wanted to explore uh, what drives people into extremism. Um, uh, and uh, Sarah's parents' death in the Peterloo massacre was was it for her. Um, and then escaping, she finds herself on a ship called the Serpent. And the ship runs aground just a kilometre outside the entrance of Sydney Harbour. And I've based that on the Rick of the Dunbar, which is the third part of uh, history I wanted to explore. Um, and finally, um, there's a fascinating woman who's on everyone's $20 note called Mary Reby. Uh, who was transported here at the age of 14 and eventually became one of the colony's most successful entrepreneurs. And I've always been fascinated by her because I've wondered what I must have taken as a woman and a convict uh, to build such a successful business. And she, a character not based on, but inspired by her, takes Sarah under her wing when she wakes up as the sole survivor of this shipwreck. So I'm sorry, that's a very long-winded way to answer your question, but uh, uh, that's Sarah's uh, narrative thread. And the reason she existed, it, she came into being, was to tie these four disparate elements together. Oh, what an achievement. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm fascinated that you've been looking at this, this, this period of history of uh, rebellion, and mm -hmm. of um, division and inequality. Uh, we, we talk about uh, polarisation and certainly rampant inequality as, as a very modern phenomenon. Mm -hmm. uh, does your reading of history lead you to think that perhaps it's not as um, modern as we would like it to be? No, I think human nature is human nature and always has been um uh and the uglier elements of it um uh, unfortunately you know never never far away and there you know you see so many parallels um one of the one of the interesting things i always like writing about is women in positions of leadership in history and how much harder they have to fight for that leadership and how 
they're treated by society. And it, it was interesting to me that in the lead up to the Peterloo massacre, there were a group of female reformers in Manchester who committed the egregious sin of making speeches in public. Uh, and for this, they were um, portrayed in newspaper, newspaper cartoons as whores. You know, they were standing on the hustings in these cartoons with their breasts exposed. There was all sorts of double entendres. And I just thought it was interesting that this, the attacks on female leaders, uh, very gendered attacks on female leaders are something that we still see. Um, that we don't have to look very far uh, to find. Um, uh, so, you know, the more things change, the more they remain the same, as they say. And that's, um, let's talk shipwrecks. Uh, you, you've, you've, you've looked at a, a real shipwreck of history? Yes. Yeah, this shipwreck, the real shipwreck of history actually occurred a few decades after my fictional shipwreck, but they share a couple of characteristics. I have dived a lot at the Gap in Sydney, um, which is about a kilometre south of the entrance to the harbour. And that is the location of a shipwreck called the Dunbar. Uh, one night, uh, the Dunbar, for reasons that we'll never know, took a header into the cliffs um, during a violent, violent storm. And uh, everybody but one person aboard lost their lives. Uh, it remains New South Wales's deadliest maritime disaster to this day. I was really interested in what a cataclysm that would have been for a colony the size of Sydney. Mm. I, was I was sort of gripped by the tragic aspect of coming all the way from England and you get within a kilometre of your destination and this happens. Um, uh, and there was an inquest with the sole survivor giving evidence. Um, I have the impression that perhaps he didn't want to sully the captain's memory, but we'll never know whether he, he mistook the gap for the entrance to the harbour, whether he couldn't see, but we have this lighthouse called Macquarie Lighthouse quite close to the gap, which isn't actually at the tip of South Head. And after that record, another nine weeks later, they built another lighthouse at the tip of South Head because it's possible that there was confusion as well, that he saw the lighthouse and thought, well, that's the harbour entrance. Um, there's a bit of detective work involved in figuring out the causes of historical shipwrecks, which is absolutely fascinating. Um, I did a maritime archaeology course at the National Maritime Museum as research, and uh, uh, it's just an endlessly fascinating subject. Um, but uh, I, I have always wanted to write about a wreck like that. So um, uh, I wrote mine a couple of decades earlier, but it is in, in many ways very similar to what happened uh, with the number. For someone who's um, completely ignorant, um, how bad was the survival rate for transatlantic um, travel in these days? Um, I understand that many people would die, uh, not of shipwrecks, but of tropical diseases and, and women would um, mm. lose young children or die in childbirth at sea on these long voyages. Um, but, but what was the success rate of, of actual the crossings themselves? How many ships sunk? I don't know the exact statistics. Um, by this period in history, it wasn't too bad, I don't mm. think. But there was still, you know, navigation hazards uh, and other hazards, which um, when you're sailing in waters, which haven't been sailed a lot in before, 
are bound to crop up. There is, a, you know, there are a couple of reefs up north which are notorious for just ripping the hulls out of ships. Um, all sorts of navigational hazards like that, like that in the the days before GPS. I don't think the I don't think the success rate was too bad, but you're right. It wasn't, you weren't guaranteed of surviving the journey, particularly not if you were a convict, you know, um, uh, and particularly not in some of the earlier uh, voyages. Um, uh, because as you say, the sea isn't the only danger. There's disease, there's scurvy, there's, um, as you say, children were particularly vulnerable. No, it wasn't, it wasn't a very safe way to travel <laughs> at all, but I don't think all many went down. Having said that, nine weeks after the Dunbar sank, another ship sank in a, in a similar location. Uh, so um, and when they sank, they tended to take quite a few people with them. Uh, yeah. Uh, so your character, Sarah McCaffrey, um, mm -hmm. she's the sole survivor of this wreck. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, now she's, uh, it's the 1820s. She's a woman um, and she has this shady history of yeah. extremism. Uh, what does she do next? Well, she doesn't quite know what to do at first because she wakes up in this hospital to find that everybody, um, that she's just seen her brother hanged in London. Um, and now the new friends that she's made aboard the ship are all gone too. And to make matters worse, she had hoped to slide into the river of the newly arrived in Sydney. Uh, she had hoped to just become anonymous. Uh, and instead, because she's the sole survivor of this shipwreck, she's one of the most famous women in Sydney, which is definitely not <laughs> what she wanted to be because she finds out on the journey that she's still being sought in relation to this, uh, to this event. Um, so she's not quite sure what to do, but thankfully for her, she meets Molly Thistle, uh, a businesswoman who's based on Mary Reby, who uh, takes her under a wing. And through Molly, Sarah slowly begins to realise that there are um, other options uh, rather than chopping off cabinet ministers' heads um, to, to make her voice heard. But you can, you know, while, while you don't condone chopping off cabinet ministers' heads, as I said, if you've been to a peaceful protest like the Peterloo Massacre, she was going to listen, she and her parents, my character Sarah and her parents, were going to listen to a man talking about parliamentary reform, which is not the kind of thing that you would think warrants a death sentence. Um, and yet by the end of the day, her parents are dead. So you can't, I suppose, in, in some ways, it's understandable to think, well, I don't have any other way to have a voice. Um, so I really wanted to, uh, to look at that aspect of it. But through Molly Thistle, she, she finds another way to have a voice. Mm. And what could women do at this time in the colony at Sydney? Uh, my understanding is that, that in the, it's certainly in the very heyday of the colony, there were very few free women. Um, and the women that were um, free actually had a, a lot more opportunity um, than they would back in London, if not for lack of a lot of creature comforts. Um, so, yeah, what can she do? Well, it's, um, there's actually um, a very good history book called Minding Her Own Business about colonial businesswomen, which um, looks, into, looks into this. And what's fascinating is that, as you, as you said, there aren't that many people who arrived free. I think at the time, I could be wrong, but I believe the ratio was about one in 10 people had arrived free at that stage in history. And uh, migration um, 
hadn't started, you know, migration of, of free settlers hadn't started by this stage. So you had a population of people by this, by this point in 1820, you have a population of people who have served their sentence, um, they've been given perhaps a land grant uh, and they start to make their way. And you're right, they um, did have, as it turned out, more opportunities in many cases than they might have had in London because the old rules didn't ap apply. And so someone like Mary Reby was possibly um, better served by being out here in the end. I'm not suggesting her journey was in any way, you know, pleasant. But as it turned out, uh, I think she was able to probably do more here than she might have been able to do back in Lancashire because, um, you know, the, uh, the, the convict stain and the sort of social strata here were not quite as fixed as they were uh, in, uh, in, the, in the old country. So there was a little bit more wriggle room uh, uh, for some of them. Um, and, you know, there, there were quite a number of colonial businesswomen. They uh, owned boarding houses, both respectable and not so respectable. They owned schools, uh, they owned um, pubs, uh, and there were, you know, th there's Mary Reby herself, who was a trader, owned heaps of real estate, had her own ships, which is like having your own private jet today. Uh, so there were, there were some people who were able to rise further than they would have in England. In your research, did you uncover anything for this book that enlightened you or, or, or surprised you, even as someone who's been an enthusiast for a long time? It was more, I think it was more, um, getting more deeply to know some of the events that had, uh, that had fascinated me for a long time. And doing the research, I, I got a fresh sense of exactly how outraged people were, of exactly how desperate they were, of how they felt they had no choice, no option, that their government didn't care about them, that they, their government was happy to let them starve if it meant keeping the merchants happy. Um, uh, and I have one, don't fear us, they fear the merchants, they don't fear us. If we wanted, want to get anything done, they need to fear us. Uh, and I read a lot of radical writings by Thomas Spence and various Luddites and so on and so forth, um, uh, and about conditions in cotton mills. And, you know, there is a vibrating sense of injustice that comes out of a lot of these primary sources, which really struck me. Yeah, and that, that's certainly something that um, was missing from my education of history, is that, mm. that I, I was kind of taught this idea that um, England and, and the Commonwealth sort of transitioned slowly and carefully um, from mm. a absolute monarchy to a very um, market-driven much more egalitarian, <laughs> um, yeah. almost without um, much rumble. <laughs> but of course, th this was a time of real extremism and, and violence mm. against peaceful protest, as you say. Mm. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was. And I mean, everybody in authority was terrified of an uprising just below the... Just 
uh, magistrates wrote to Lord Sidmouth and said, um, we're really worried that we're going to have a revolution. And the French Revolution was in living memory and was ugly and uh, the authorities were scared and as a appalling, appallingly overreacted to things in St Peter's Field. Could it be compared to anti-communism in the 20th century, McCarthyism and um, of that kind of reactionary fear of what, what could be? If society falls apart, yeah, I suppose so. I suppose so. It's 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 the it's the idea that um, uh, those in power uh, will do anything to keep it, uh, and if somebody's threatening the power structures, if uh, you know you've got the the, the landowning men who basically own the world. And they were appalled at the idea of letting men who didn't own land vote, much less women. Oh my God! And so when when women and the lower classes started making a play for some of that power, they did not react very kindly. Not at all. Uh, when did writing become a passion for you? I'm interested. You, you have a very serious-sounding professional career, um, and I'm, I'm wondering if. <laughs> If uh, that that's that was maybe your way of rebelling against uh, uh, your father and his legacy. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny you say that because when I was at uni, I had uh, you know friends who were children of professionals who wanted to go into the arts, and I was studying law. <laughs> so, um, never, never, never became a, a, a lawyer, but uh, uh, it. It was part of that, I think, but also, I mean, I've always loved creative writing for fun. I've got drawers and drawers and drawers and drawers full of scribbled in notebooks that will never see the light of day just because it's, a, you know, it's a release for me and it's um, cathartic just to do a bit of creative writing. I do it in the way other people might, you know, do crosswords or, or knit or whatever. It's just my thing. Um, and I tried to write um, a couple of books um, about a decade ago and wasn't able to get them published. So I thought, oh, well, you know, I just don't have it. And at least I know now uh, and I'll get on with the business of paying mortgages and raising children and so forth. Uh, and it wasn't until I started writing with Dad with the Montserrat series that uh, I got a bit more confidence with it. Um, and I'm really, I'm happy now that those earlier manuscripts were rejected. I wasn't at the time. Uh, any writer will tell you it stings to have a book rejected. It really, really does. Um, uh, but um, I, I'm happy now because of two things. First of all, I think I always might have wondered whether the surname was an influence and now I know that it wasn't um, because I had books rejected. And secondly, um, those those books were published, weren't published because they weren't good enough. And um, I used to view them as a waste of time and now I view them as really important training. Um, and I'm glad I wrote them and I'm glad I failed because it got me to the point where I could put something out that I was proud to have my, have my name on. I'm wondering, um, you've been really prolific in the last um, couple of years uh, between 
the series and your own novels. Uh, how has the pandemic played on that? Um, are you getting more output or are you, uh, has, it, has it dampened creativity? Well, it's funny, the first week that we were in lockdown, and I'm very fortunate, by the way, you know, to live in um, a city where we're not locked down to, you know, there aren't that many restrictions at the moment. My heart goes out to everyone in Victoria, and I'm so grateful to them for um, undergoing such horrible, you know, such isolation and, and disruption to keep the rest of the country safe. They really deserve applause for that. Um, when we were, uh, when we did lockdown here in Sydney uh, in March, I thought, this is great. I'm going to get so much done. Um, and for a week, I just couldn't focus. I don't know what was wrong with me. My head was just somewhere else. And all I was doing was continually refreshing news sites. <laughs> and after that, I, you know, I got back into my stride. I also, of course, had a, I've got an, H, an HSC student at home and a uni student. So all of a sudden the house got a lot smaller. <laughs> uh, but um, after, after a little while, I'm fortunate because I work from home anyway. So, my daily routine wasn't as disrupted as somebody who usually works in an office would have been. So that made it a little bit easier um, for me. Um, but, uh, and, and I just sort of got back into my regular, regular routine. But there was a, there was a bit of a fog there at first. I don't know whether you found that. Ben. I think a lot of people found that. So, yeah. um, and I don't know whether the fog has lifted or we've just, Got straining our eyes. We've <laughs> <laughs> um, had lights installed. I'm interested. You, you, you've you've uh, you've worked uh, as a sole creative now, and mm. um, you've co-authored this series. Um, what are the differences, and do you have a personal preference for a way of working? Well, um, it's. The difference is I kind of feel like I don't have a safety net <laughs> because... Uh, um, you can't blame it on someone. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, it's, it's my name and my name. <laughs> um, uh, I, love, I love working with that and we, we will work together again. Montserrat will write again. Uh, but um, uh, the way we used to work is uh, we would hammer out the plot together and then I'd go away and write the book in consultation with him and then we would edit it together. So, you know, I remember thinking, I hope this is okay, but you know what, I'll run it by dad and see what he thinks. And when, uh, you know, doing two novels um, in the middle of the third uh, by myself now, that's obviously not something I, I do. I uh, occasionally ask him to read a small thing here and there but I'm very conscious of the fact that he's an octogenarian who's still working and I don't want to make him read stuff if his name isn't going to be on the on the cover so uh he's read um I think he's read the Peterloo massacre scene and the shipwreck scene from the wreck and that's uh that's about that's about it um because obviously he's got his own his own work um uh, so, I, you know, not having that safety net is a bit daunting at first, and I was very lucky to have it to begin with, of course, uh, but you get used to it. You know, I like working with him, but I also quite like, you know, creating this 
little world that I can go hide in by myself too. <laughs> Something you can own. Yes. Uh, there's this great passion for the historical in your work. Um, can we look forward to more of that? Will there be more mysteries in the future, more stories of women in colonial Australia? What can we look forward to? There's definitely going to be more Montserrat at some point. Um, he's He's got to deal with a serial killer, so we can't leave him dangling for too long, especially as this serial killer is targeting educated convicts. So Montserrat's very nervous because he's an educated convict. Um, at the moment, I'm working on a book about uh, the last queen of Tahiti. Um, who was taken from her Sydney boarding school to marry the Crown Prince of Tahiti, uh, uh, went and had adventures in Paris and so on and so forth. Um, so again, it's this fascination with women in leadership positions in history that I've always, you know, always been really, really interested in. So when I, when I came across this story, I uh, couldn't resist. I also want to write about Australia's first female pirates, Charlotte Badger and Kitty Hegarty. Um, so they will, uh, <laughs> they will, Queen Moran nudged them out of the way for now. She pulled rank, but, um, <laughs> but, but I'll get to them eventually. But I do have, uh, I, I'm very much looking forward to revisiting Montserrat and Mrs. M um, in the, the next Montserrat book too. Uh, um, it's, uh, uh, I feel very fortunate to have so, so much to work on. Yeah. A whole catalog of stuff to look forward to. And, um, tell me about another fantastic project you have with Lee Kaminsky. Oh yeah. Well, Leah, um, as you know, is an extraordinarily talented writer. She's the author of the hollow bones and she rang me in February and said, look, I want to, do this book where we get um, writers and wildlife researchers to write about their own personal connections with wildlife. Uh, and then we get photographers to submit photos and we match them up and we publish it uh, for wildlife charities. Um, and I hate to ask, but would you co-edit it with me? Um, and I jumped at the chance. I thought it was a really fascinating project. And then the pandemic hit. Um, uh, and Leah, uh, who's also a GP, uh, was on the front lines of it. Um, uh, and she and I both found um, that it was just a real bright spot in our days to work on this, to be receiving all of this wonderful writing from all of these wonderful writers, to see this thing taking shape, to sort of trawl through images of um, animals and birds and select them. Um, it was just a it was just a joy to work on. So that's out in uh, in November, and uh, we've had some incredibly generous. Everyone involved was unpaid, um, so we've had some incredibly generous, including Leah and I. So we've had some incredibly generous people give us their reflections. We've got writers like uh, Tony Birch, um, Pavel Parrot, uh, Bruce Pascoe, um, Claire Coleman. Um, Tom Keneally, I managed to talk Frank him into Simpsons it. Frank Simpson's in there. <laughs> um, Sean Tan. Frank Simpson. Yep. Yeah. Uh, Paul Kelly um, even Paul contributed Kelly. a poem for us. Oh, uh, that's so yeah. special. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, and it was, you know, it was just such a 
such a wonderful thing to approach these people cap in hand and say, you know, can we ask you to work for free? And all of these wonderful people who are incredibly busy and very successful said, sure, I'd love to. So the brief was simply to write about anything to do with the natural world in Australia, which resonates with them whether it's an animal or an ecosystem or what have you. And what they came back with was just extraordinary. So that's out in early November and uh, the proceeds are going to the Australian Marine Conservation Society and the Australian Wildlife Conservancy. Yes, it's called so, Animals Make Us Human. It looks beautiful. Um, and it will make a, make, make a great Christmas present. I, I, I think it would make an absolutely excellent Christmas present. Oh, the ringtail on the cover, by the way, illustrates a, a story by another wonderful writer, Professor Claire Wright, winner of the Stella Prize, who gave us a terrific uh, story about a ringtail possum that she had um, uh, some interactions with. Um, and it's extraordinary, just all of the pieces are just humming with passion. Uh, because we didn't want to assign someone an animal and say, you write about kangaroos and you write about koalas. We just said, write what, write what you love, you know, write what you most relate to in our natural environment. And we just had some extraordinary responses. Do you see yourself as an activist? And is that intrinsic to you being an, a writer? I see myself as an activist per se. Um, I, I just want to use my skills where I can. For, and, and my skills aren't that much, Ben. I can't cook. I'm no good at, you know, um, auto mechanics or home repairs or anything vaguely useful in the real world. So it was just great to have an opportunity to um, the use skills I do have uh, uh, for something positive. Um, uh, so yeah, I was really, really happy to be involved in that. And it was Leah's brainchild though, I must say it was Leah's brainchild and she's been extraordinary to drive this while she's writing a novel uh, and running a GP practice. She's, she's superwoman. I think you both are. <laughs> Meg, thank you very much for your time today. Oh, my, my pleasure, Ben. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, no, it's a pleasure. And thank you for, for, thank you for, thanks for doing it like this. It's, uh, it's tricky, but uh, thanks for persevering. And um, this is a fantastic novel, and I, I really look forward to uh, no seeing problem. it go into the hands of readers. Thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, the Wreck is published by Echo Press and is available from booktopia.com.au right now. Thank you for listening to the Booktopia podcast channel. Don't forget, you can subscribe to us on SoundCloud and iTunes for free and get access to hundreds of author discussions, book analysis pieces and more. Or, if your eyes need a workout, head to Booktopia TV on YouTube. Don't forget, for all books featured in this podcast, and for access to a whole bunch of other fun content on our blog, head to Booktopia, Australia's local bookstore, at booktopia.com.au.